What is the current state of U.S.-Russia relations? How will hosting the Olympics impact Russia's reputation globally? Given recent events, are we seeing a reemergence of an east-west divide? Join us today as we discuss these questions and more. From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. I'm your host, Ann Knapke. We are spending time with Ambassador Ian Kelly today, Midwest diplomat in residence for the State Department. With a distinguished career of nearly 30 years serving the United States Foreign Service, Ambassador Kelly spent much of his career working with diplomats and embassies in Western and Eastern Europe. We meet up with him today to specifically discuss his views on U.S.-Russian relations. Thank you for being here, Ambassador. Thank you. Let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to be the Midwest diplomat in residence for the State Department? Well, it's actually it's it's quite simple. My job is uh, is outreach and recruiting for the Midwest region for the five states: uh, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa. And I spend about two thirds of my time going around to uh, to various campuses. I was just I was in Central Illinois last week. Bradley and uh, Illinois State, and then uh, tomorrow I'm going to uh, to uh, Ball State and Indiana University. So outreach and recruitment is specifically for the Foreign Service. For the well, State for Department. the State Department in general, but it's it's we you know we want to get a uh, uh, both you know, obviously the best and the brightest for the Foreign Service, but we also want geographical diversity too. We want we want to get beyond the kind of the you know the bicoastal. Uh, uh, group of students who go to some of the big international relations yep. mm-hmm. universities and try and get uh, more people from the heartland. That's great. Sounds great. And Chicago is home for you, right? Chicago is so home for near me. Near and dear yeah. to your heart. Um, Ambassador, having spent nearly 30 years in the Foreign Service, you've seen a lot of issues handled by quite a few different administrations. Can you give us at the Harris School, some of us budding Foreign Service officers, a sense for how an administration sets their foreign policy agenda? Uh, relative to a specific country like Russia. Are there drastic changes from one administration to the next? What's been your observation over the years? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. It's something I've thought about a lot, and I think the answer is uh, there really aren't drastic changes from one administration to the next. I think there's quite a bit of continuity in general in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, I will, however, say that there, w- there have been some changes in tactics, and um, I'll, I'll take as an example the change from the uh, Bush 43 administration to the Obama administration. And I actually, I had a real kind of bird's eye view or insider view to that mm-hmm. since I was director of Russian affairs in, uh, in early 2009. And of course, uh, it was also uh, this change in tactics was something that became of interest, I think, to the American media too, and it had a um, uh, you know there was there was kind of a, a headline to it: the reset of Russia policy. Mm-hmm. And the um, the reset really, I think, stemmed from uh, the fact that we were at a very bad place with Russia in uh, in 2008 because of the uh, war in Georgia. Uh, and I think what the Obama administration uh, recognized was, okay, we have differences with Russia. 
uh, over issues like Georgia, but that there were uh, so many really important problems that we needed to address with Russia, nuclear nonproliferation, counterterrorism, um, changes in the Middle East, and so we wanted to develop a um, program of practical cooperation while recognizing that we had some differences in certain principles. And that's really what the reset policy was. Let's take a moment and, and talk about the big story of the day, the Sochi Olympics. Um, all eyes are on Russia right now as so many of us tune into those Olympic Games. And while the Games tend to generate a sense of prestige for the host country, they also tend to eliminate those political issues that can be criticized on the global stage. For Russia, the Games have refocused international attention on some of the hardline policies of Mr. Putin's government, prompting protests on everything from Russia's support to Syria's president to prosecution of political op opponents and anti-gay legislation. Additionally, there's been a swell of commentary about Russia's stagnant economic growth right now, and if hosting the Olympics was perhaps the best use of Russian resources at this moment in time. What are your perspectives, having spent a significant amount of your career specifically on U.S.-Russia relations? Do you think hosting the Olympics will result in a net positive for the image of Russia globally? I think the short answer to that is yes. I think it will result in, in a uh, net positive for the image of Russia uh, because uh, I think it will uh, show what a beautiful country it is. Um, it uh, shows, it, it, despite their, their early difficulties, uh, in, uh, in in logistics, I think it's going to show that uh, Russia can put on a um, uh, a large international production like the Olympics, and I think it's going to show that uh, the skill and and dedication and persistence of Russian athletes. Uh, I, however, as you suggest in your question, <laughs> I do think that um, it. I'm not so sure that it's going to end up as a net positive for uh, for Mr. Putin himself, mm -hmm. because as you say, it has sh uh, shown a very bright and harsh light on some of his uh, policies that uh, that we object to, uh, policies that we think lead to uh, to intolerance of uh, of people with uh, different sexual preferences, uh, t uh, policies that have led to a a real uh, Real intimidation of, of media, of uh, of restrictions of, of free expression, and uh, I think you know actually in the long run this will be a net positive for the Russian people that uh, there is this kind of attention being uh, being given to some of these uh, legislative and and other official actions that have uh, led to uh, some very very worrisome developments in the uh, space of, of uh, civil society in Russia, be it independent media or yeah. political activists, uh, gay activists. So I think, you know, and, and the, uh, the final analysis is a net positive for Russia. Yeah. Not so sure about Mr. Putin. With the recent events in Ukraine spurred initially by President Yanukovych's dismissal of a trade deal with the European Union in favor of stronger alignment with Russia and the Eurasian Economic Union. This topic of divergence between East and West has been renewed. Um, so a two-part question for you. What do you think are the key topics of divergence? And what institutions are going to be critical for addressing these issues? Well, I think 
um, in, in terms of where the divergences are, I mean, I, I touched on uh, on some of them because mm-hmm. the, some of these uh, retrograde legislative moves are not just in Russia. We we see them really across what we call in shorthand Eurasia, you know, which is uh, most of the former uh, Soviet Union. But how we address these issues, I, you know, we we say in the Foreign Service you tend to look at Foreign Service pro- problems through the prism of your previous post. My previous post was the Organization for Security and Cooperation mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, one of the multi regional multilateral organizations that we belong to, that where we uh, manage our relationship with with Russia and the uh, countries of the former Soviet Union. Um, I think. What we're really concerned about is how there seem to be developing two different uh, uh, two different spheres, kind of the Euro-Atlantic sphere and the Eurasia sphere. And our policy has been one space uh, in Europe, one space uh, you know, free of dividing lines. This was the Helsinki dream, yep. um, and we seem to be moving further and further away from that that ideal. Uh, so we need to address this through uh, increased engagement at places like the OSCE, at uh, NATO, you know, the NATO-Russia Council, and we need to develop common approaches to, uh, to common problems rather than seeing uh, the problems through the, Euro- the prism of the Eurasia Union and then we look at it through NATO. We need to look at these problems together mm-hmm. and, and develop uh, common approaches. And, of course, the OSCE is one of those places where we try to do that. A couple of follow-up questions. One, for those listeners who may not be as familiar with the um, Helsinki deal that you referenced in the last question, could you could you uh, fill us in with maybe a, yeah, a couple well, sentences on the, on the Helsinki vision? I'll try and give you the three minutes. Uh, <laughs> Basically, uh, the the OSCE really stemmed from the uh, from the, the Helsinki process. There was something called the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe that culminated in the Helsinki Final Act uh, in uh, in 1975, and that is where we set forth the Helsinki principles of trying to develop common approaches to to uh, to common security problems trying to eliminate dividing lines. And part of it, too, was a recognition that um, respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms was no longer uh, the uh, exclusive uh, right of the jurisdiction Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. the country concerned. Mm -hmm. It was no longer an internal affair, but it was the concern of of everyone. And uh, so we developed with the fall of Berlin Wall, Integration of the Soviet Union, we developed the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where we would try and discuss some of these uh, issues of common concern and develop common approaches. That was a good three-minute answer. <laughs> uh, this whole discussion, though, is making me think about uh, your answer to the Olympic question with concern to the, you know, a net win for the Russian people and what role they might play as we think more macro about. Um, what the East-West divide means and what's happening in all of these international organizations, but at the end of the day, the the will of the people and how they'll influence the agenda of how Russia plays with Ukraine and Russia mm-hmm. plays in these in these organizations. I have a few more questions for you. Um, 
specifically about bridging the gap between academia and the practical policy world. At the Harris School, we spend a lot of time thinking about that gap. And, and so in your role in the Foreign Service for the years, how have you seen or and or what are your ideas on bringing the academia expertise and knowledge into more of the practical, practical policy world where decisions are made and, and solutions are created? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. And it's something that, this, this is something that has concerned me really uh, throughout my 29 career in the Foreign Service is that we who are uh, making and implementing policy really uh, could benefit uh, a lot more from more dialogue, more input from the uh, from the academic or the research community, and this was really brought home to me when I was uh, at the uh, OSCE, where we would tend to kind of respond to uh, the um, the issue of a day or try and put out the, mm-hmm. the fire of the day, mm-hmm. rather than taking a more macro approach to try and develop you know broader strategies. And one thing we were able to do while I was there was, you know, I'll I'll highlight a couple of things that we were able to do. And that one is we have an annual ministerial meeting in December. Secretary Clinton came all three times that I was there. And we developed something called the Parallel NGO Conference, where uh, NGOs would come from all over the OSCE space, have a parallel meeting, and they would uh, develop recommendations on how the ministers could approach many of the problems uh, mm-hmm. facing the OSCE in terms of tolerance, uh, minority rights, intimidation of independent media. And we, the United States, would look very closely at these recommendations. I can't say that other countries would pay the same amount of attention to it, but uh, Secretary Clinton always met with this group mm-hmm. when she was there. Another thing that we did was this was more than the Secretary General, an Italian diplomat named Lamberto Danier. He instituted something called, uh, he called it Security Days, right before our annual Security Review Conference, where we look specifically at military security issues. Mm-hmm. And he would invite um, academics from all over, from the U.S., from Russia, from Europe, uh, and they would do something similar where they would talk about what do we do about the Conventional Forces uh, in Europe Treaty, which is the the main conventional arms control agreement that we have, because it's it's from it's a it's a it's a Cold War instrument, and uh, we need creative solutions for how to adapt it to the 21st century. So this is this is something that I uh, I give a lot of credit to Secretary Clinton for because she put such a real emphasis on engagement with civil society, with non governmental institutions. Uh, and I give her, you know, full credit for being able to to get these agreements, to have these parallel conferences. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example from from my experience how we need to bring the academic community more into our policy mm-hmm. deliberation. Sometimes it must be really difficult to just pause and take that time. Really um, difficult <laughs> to do something like having a security days yes, conference, but really but difficult. So but what you need to do is set it aside mm-hmm. and uh, you know make sure you have a dialogue. And even more important, that there's follow-up mm-hmm. to the dialogue. And this is where some of the countries in the OSCE have not really performed, I think, as they should, by not following through on these recommendations from their own mm-hmm. 
uh, NGOs. That will be a space to watch. I'm thinking about in other areas of the world that's also happening. World Economic Forum. You have you have a collection of stakeholders meeting around th those central meetings. In APEC, you have the same situation right. where you're having NGOs convening together right. and private sector. Yeah, ASEAN does it too. We've managed to discuss quite a bit in 15 minutes. We appreciate your time today. Ambassador, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, a production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. This podcast was produced and edited by Ann Knapke. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. Special thanks this week to Julie Cooper for helping with production. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org and on iTunes. Thanks for listening and join us next time.